people I get to interview on Peck and Trees are different every time, and all of them have different stories to share. Yet, I feel that this one turned out to be more personal than others. I talked to Armand Baum, the head of Social Impact Stellenbosch Business School. He oversees their efforts to make education more inclusive and labels himself to be an academic activist, whose opinions are often not welcome. We talk about his path into academia. To say the least, opportunity was not handed to him easily. To get to school, he spent four hours on a train every day. And in university, he was the only person of color to graduate in his class. He says that he was certainly not the brightest, but that he was taught good values as a child and that he learned to persevere through hardship early on. We go into the social aspect of sustainability and challenge how Western countries impose certain sustainability standards such as footprinting without ever having set foot into disadvantaged African communities. Africa is in need of responsible leadership to deal with the sprawling inequality in the and while Armand trains leaders at Stellenbosch Business School, he thinks that leadership qualities are built at an early age and can only be further developed later on. Our conversation was personal and philosophical at times, but worth every single minute. Unfortunately, we were experiencing connection issues and had to cut our conversation short in the end. Nonetheless, I hope that you find a piece of wisdom in there that is useful to you. Enjoy. Welcome to Tech and Trees. Hi, Amand. We are having some, or we have had some technical issues, but I hope you're doing fine. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm wonderful, Pascal. It's been quite an interesting uh, couple of minutes trying to get us to have a conversation. Yeah, I think so as well. I think, you know, accumulatedly speaking, we probably have uh, spent about half an hour just trying to figure things out. But we're finally here and we're finally talking. So I'd say let's get right into it. Um, and the first question that I would that I have for you is, uh, what do you think of when I ask you about a formative childhood experience? Yeah, I, you know, one of my crystallized memories is um, remembering where it is I grew up. And um, I grew up in a, a suburb called Grassy Park um, on the Cape Flats. Um, it had the highest number of illegal uh, taverns per square kilometer in our country. So it, it was uh, directly opposite my house was this pink house. And I constantly have that, that visual um, that I, I reference if people ask me what do I think about in my, my formative years, um, because it was something that I managed to avoid, you know, and that pink house represented lots of social ills. Um, so I find myself um, you know, reflecting back on that time and, and here I am talking to you, you know, <laughs> from here the streets of Grassy Park to having a conversation with you. Like across the planet, basically. What, what do you think helped you avoid these socials that you were talking about? I think values. I grew up in a, a family um, that was in service of community. So most of my 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 aunts and uncles were either teachers or nurses um, or in uh, the ministry in the church you, you know that's my parents were my father was a, a minister in the church and then he did community work so i saw good values in practice um, but that doesn't mean i was always an angel right um, but i saw the good <laughs> values in practice 
<laughs> a balance is important. Um, what, what, what comes first to your mind when I ask you who Armand Baum is? First, uh, husband to Liesl, father to Michael, Daniel, Gabriel, and Emily Ray, and then an activist academic. So I happen to be an academic, but I think uh, social justice runs deep in my brain. And we're going to talk in more detail about that. Um, what is the most controversial idea that you support? Truth matters. <laughs> in nowadays, truth matters, right? Um, taking a stance, being uh, true to oneself um, and living a, a life. And I don't want to say an authentic life, but living a life with minimal tension. So being who it is. Um, that you are, and in order to be that, you have to um, live by truth, and 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 I think truth matters. Uh, and relating on the to political the political front, if you want something political, <laughs> I you're think very free to interpret this question the way you want. Yeah, some people have too much, um, uh, and they should be sharing more. Okay, um, uh, relating to that, maybe like, what is one thing that you consider to be overrated? Overrated. Wow. What do I think is overrated? I think, you know, funny enough, um, the value people place on climbing this academic ladder. I think intelligence is something that one can marvel at and find in very different spaces. And so I, I link that back to, to, to me entering academia. I place a certain value on my qualification, but intelligence one can find all around you, and it comes in different shapes and, and, and forms. And, and being open to understanding and seeing intelligence, you know, I think that's, that's, that's important. How, how does one remain open to, to spotting intelligence in different places? Humility. You know, a PhD doesn't give you... It makes you smart about certain things and, and certain things only, right? Um, but being out in practice, um, getting one's hands dirty, being at the coalface of issues, um, I think that's important, you know. And, and in academic terms, you know, people I often, in, with students in my class, I remind them that if they want to speak about poverty, well, then they've got to go and see and smell and hear what poverty looks like. You know, you can't do that from an ivory tower. So humility, being close to the issues, staying close to those issues, um, and then getting your hands dirty. Yeah. Um, no, thank you so much for this. this uh, quite deep thoughts, actually. Um, you were mentioning already that your entry to academia has not maybe been the most traditional or the way that a lot of people would uh, assume it to be. Um, you're not right now, let's start get talking about what you do. You're the head of the so of social impact at Stellenbosch Business School. Um, do you mind diving a bit into what kind of path or what kind of different turning points in your life have led you to being in this position now? That's a very interesting uh, question. Um, so I always wanted to be a phys ed teacher, physical education teacher. Um, and when I grew up, uh, my primary schooling, I went to, uh, not that I'm Catholic, but I went to this little Catholic school. Um, it's called St. Anthony's 
um, primary school uh, in Heathfield, about five kilometers from where I grew up. And it had very good structure, very good teachers um, that instilled good values. Um, I wasn't the brightest kid in the class, that I can say confidently, um, but there was something that they sparked um, for me. Uh, and then I, I went, um, when I got to standard five, grade seven, um, it was just the turn in our democracy and schools became open. So for those of our listeners who didn't know, many schools were, well, all schools were segregated. So up until uh, a period in the 90s, uh, people of color could only go to certain schools and white people were afforded the privilege of going to um, uh, certain schools. Um, and then I had the opportunity in my high schooling to switch into an open school, the first school that opened its doors to people of color in the country. In fact, they had done so ahead of um, the government allowing it to happen. Um, and, and then there I met a first teacher who cared, nurtured, and was very interested in me as a person. I wasn't the brightest kid, as I said, but he, he inspired me. Um, and then he inspired me to go to university. And it was there that I found a human movement science, uh, the precursor for a physics degree. Um, and that was three years. I was one of six people of color out of probably 150 students. Um, so it was still the early stages of, of our democracy. Um, and I was the only person of color at the end of three years to graduate um, with that degree. In my third year, I met another interesting character who was walking around with a white coat um, and he introduced me to the honors course, which was biokinetics. Um, and that was the specialization in exercise and rehabilitation science. And in a conversation with him, he encouraged me to keep going. Uh, and then I was one of 17 um, to get selected for my honors course. And they are specialized in um, working with adults with disabilities in, in sports. Um, and that started off a journey. I'd always been connected to a local organization, the League of Friends of the Blind. So there was a disability um, component. There's a huge disability component to my life. My parents worked in the organization for close to 40 years. So I was conscientized towards this minoritized group. My education started to shift that way. Um, and then I finished that degree. I went into a private practice. I was doing a lot of good work. Um, I was getting paid really well. And then one day I woke up and said, this is not my purpose. Um, I wanted to do community work. And then I left that. A very nice job um, and I went to work in this community organization the League of Friends of the Blind and started to develop sports for blind people in the country again rejuvenated revived it um, and then I did a master's degree in disability studies so that was you know something to solidify my space within the sector and then the choice was an MBA or something else. And I wasn't quite intrigued by the MBA. And then I ended up wanting to bridge. I had a question about why it is that people with disabilities weren't included in the workplace like everyone else. 
And then I, I went on this journey of trying to find a supervisor who would take this on within the business school. And, and that's how I ended up um, doing a PhD that sits at the intersection of disability inclusion, um, and diversity management, and then the ethical side um, of business ethics. Yeah, so that, that took me there. And then uh, one day I was reading Twitter, saw this postdoc um, application that was available. And I, I, I took that postdoc at Stellenbosch University, made a phone call, tried to get in. And then I was offered that. And so about in 2019, that door opened for me. Um, and the year after that postdoc, I was uh, made full-time faculty. So it hasn't been quite a linear journey, but my passion has driven me, my activism has driven me, and in order to speak to different people, I needed to develop the language. And so my academic career has been tailored around what it is that I'm passionate about and what suits my activism. And so it's always been bringing those things together. And I think I've done that well, you know. Yeah. Um, as you're talking about activism and what shapes your work today overall, like I, I would just quickly want to pick out one thing that you mentioned that you were the only person of color to graduate from your class in university. Uh, how did that at that point in time, but maybe also up until today, shape who you are? And what and how what and what you do? I, yeah, I used to have to take a train to university. We couldn't afford for me to stay there, and so I took a two-hour train ride every morning. Now it's not your European trains, right? The two hours on a European train can take you seven hundred kilometers. I'm talking about a two-hour train to take me fifty kilometers. <laughs> so. Um, Two hours in the morning uh, to get me to university, uh, starting at 4.30 a.m., uh, two hours coming back from university, which was normally around about 6 p.m. that I would get on the train, and I'd be home by 8.39 p.m., right? And then I'd have to do some extra work and then go sleep and then repeat. Um, and that that started off something in me about being consistent and using the time that I had to do the things that I could do. And so I read for two hours in the morning and I read for two hours in the evening while my colleagues were probably having a good time, having uh, the social side of university um, available to them. So there was something about consistency that developed there. The classes were in Afrikaans, so it wasn't my first language, and it was many of the other students' first language, but the textbooks were in English, so I could read the textbooks, and the exams were luckily in English. So I could, I could figure out how to get through a university um, relatively unscathed. Right, you had to, at some stage, I figured out you find past papers, you read those, um, and then you, 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 you're able to predict in some ways what's going to happen in the exam. So that was that, um, that consistency. I was forced into consistency. Let's put it that way. I was forced into that yeah. consistency. 
I was also determined because I didn't come from a wealthy family. And so I valued education. And I was I already about to ask you to about the, the sense of perseverance there. Yeah. So I had to persevere. And then education in this country unlocks many doors for you. Um, I can look back at it now at the pinnacle of, an, of our academic stream and say, I'm so glad I just kept one foot in front of the other. Uh, and I'll remind you, I'm not the brightest, I wasn't the brightest academically, but I managed to be consistent. Um, and then some of my colleagues, you know, they got distracted, they had it a bit easier than I did. Some had to fall out because the language barrier was so great. Um, I didn't have a social circle, so it was just literally me in the mornings, on a train, in a class, um, and back. And in fact, I, I suppose probably many of my colleagues, I see them in the street, I can recognize them, um, but they don't actually <laughs> recognize me, so they, they don't know that I was in their class. Um, yeah, so it's, it's something that keeps me going. And in our university, which is historically a, a white university, um, and the intellectual and um, religious home of apartheid, that's the history and the origins of it, I find myself in a very interesting space too. So being able to influence the transformation of a university is what also sits deeply with me. I actually enjoy being in a space where it is that I can make a difference. Um, it doesn't yeah. always, it's not always received well, but I'm there, um, you know, and, and it's purposeful and meaningful work. So, so I, I have that, that still in the back of my mind. Um, I was one of six that graduated from my undergree. I was the only person of color in my honors course. I had a horrible experience with my master's degree at that stage. My supervisor wasn't interested in me. Um, and then I, yeah, I just kept going, you know, but, but it's very different today. Um, there's more opportunities, but when I say very different, I say more opportunities, but the challenges still remain. Yeah. When, when you say that, um, you're an activist in the workplace. So let, being the head of social impact at Stellenbosch Business School, what, what, what kind of changes do you, do you work towards to? When you said like you, you enjoy being in a field of where, where you can make a change actually, well, like what, what do you think needs to change in, in the environment that you're in? You know, for me, inclusion is important and belonging is important. So I have constantly this question about what does it mean to belong? Um, and we have such a diverse group of people working um, in, in the university as a whole, but not necessarily in our faculty. It's actually not that diverse. But to belong is important for everybody. And so working towards ensuring that there is a space where everybody feels they belong is important for me, um, irrespective of our differences, you know. And I think that's, that's, that's critical for all human beings, right? We want to belong. We want to feel valued. We want to feel like there is purpose in what it is that we're doing. 
So that's just some of the 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 the, the challenges around restorative justice, shaping and changing the way the place looks, um, but also you know making it a place where people feel like they belong. Yeah. Um, maybe before we dive deeper into that, I think we got like I strayed a bit off of where I actually wanted to go with this conversation, but I think your background is really interesting. So I wanted to go deeper into that actually. Um, but could you maybe before we dive deeper into what you already mentioned now, like quickly define how you see social impact in, 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 in your capacity and then also what dimensions of social impact are most important to South Africa or to making a making South Africa maybe a country where everybody can feel like they belong, as you as you put it now. Yeah. When when I look at the concept of social impact, now I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the theory around it. I'm not really a, a person who has to have a theory to explain something. Um, but when we look at what our greatest challenge is, for me, I summarize it as inequality. And whether you view that from an economic perspective, an environmental perspective, or a social perspective, it's inequality that is our challenge. And so rebalancing the societies we live within is important. Uh, and if what we are endeavoring to do is not directed at that, um, of bringing about that, that balance, then it just contributes to um, further inequities. And so from a theoretical perspective, what we've adopted at the business school is the departure point of um, Bublitani's theory. And so he speaks to, to three aspects. You know, people of authority can deliver an impact and that's important. And so we work in a school, a business school that is globally renowned. Um, so it is an authority figure. Um, the immediacy, how close you are to that issue is also important. And this is quite challenging within an academic institution because people have varied interests. But how close you are to a particular issue, the immediacy, how close you are to that issue, allows you to have um, uh, impact. And then the number of people you can get to work on an issue also assists with delivering impact. And so that's sort of my role in the business school is try to channel people's energy towards um, those issues that we can most, um, yeah, we can deliver the greatest impact on. And I think for many people, they try and do too much, you know, and I think that's where we have the challenge is not enough collaboration around key or critical issues for us to 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 really deliver social impact what 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 are the critical issues that you need to balance when you say you need to focus more to actually achieve something well if if you look in a South African context, um one of the or the one thing we did not negotiate or democratize was our economy. Um, and so you have the minority, so 5% of our population controls over 90% of the economy. Right? So, so, so that is hugely problematic in terms of transforming society. So 
Um, and that to me is, is one of our greatest challenges is how it is that we transform our economy, how it is that we bring um, people into it more actively. And if you remember what I said, education is critical. It's a door that unlocks. But people like me, who look like me, who sound like me, um, access to education, access to skills development is, is very difficult to, to come by. And when we look at these challenges, especially the latter one that you mentioned, what do you think are the main, let's say, levers that need to be pulled to move forward on these issues? I don't know if there's such a thing as like a final, finally resolving these issues. I mean, like, I think we don't need to look at South Africa. We can also look at any kind of European or any other country that inequality will always persist to a certain extent. But what, what does it need to move forward on this? Well, let me speak from South African perspective, and then we can, uh, you know, I can I can reference some of the comparisons I've seen in other yeah. parts of the world, where we've lacked in our education system. We've placed a high value on tertiary education, right, as as the way out, and there is not enough support at our early childhood development phase, and that is where it is we need to redirect our resources and our attention. For people like me, I want to say we're almost a lost generation. Um, we have exceptionally high uh, dropout rates in school, unemployment rates between the ages of 15 and 24 um, is close to 70%, it's, it's over 70%. It's, it's, it's horrific, right? Um, and that's the generation that technically should be working so that I could have a pension at the later stage, yeah. but it's not going to be there. Um, and so the reliance on, 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 on taxes um, in the next 20 years uh, to keep this uh, state going is going to be something that we're going to have to face. So I would say fixing up at early childhood development stage, creating and generating entrepreneurs should happen there. It doesn't happen in university. That's a luxury. Um, and so if we're wanting to bring people into the economy, it, we have to go back there. And we have to say, we'll plant the seed now for the 20 years later. Um, that doesn't mean we can't plant seeds today. Um, um, but, but that's what we have to do. We have to plant the seeds so that in 20 years we will, will see the, the, the real rewards. And if we, if we get more concrete in talking about these seeds that need to be planted, be they today, for example, what do you think needs to be concretely done? And maybe what are you also doing at the business school, for example, to plant your own seeds? Yeah, so um, I think, yeah. We, we don't have enough financial resources within the early childhood development phase. That's the one thing. We need to resource. We need to create more and capacitate more community-based early childhood development centers. That's concrete. I think that's the first step that we need to do. Create a foundation. Um, at the moment, when, when we don't have When you say development centers, you mean, you mean schools or what do you mean by that? Before primary school, there is um, that pre-primary phase. Um, and we have many community-based, 
So in the townships, in our communities, we have people who aren't necessarily capacitated to develop a curriculum to, to, to teach children how to think, but they're occupying a space as parents go out to try and do work. So I think we need to resource capacitate um, those people, those centers um, that aren't in the mainstream, because they are far more not in the mainstream than in the mainstream. So we need to shift our focus to, to, to bear within the education system. From a business school perspective, um, one of the programs that we do doesn't necessarily reach that far back to early childhood development, but we have an embedded partner, the Torres Foundation. They are a foundation that works with historically disadvantaged schools and children and develops um, their, their modality as a debating program. And they are geared towards developing citizens that are active, um, sound models and judgments, um, and, and that will hopefully make a difference um, to, to our future. So that's one of the ways that we've gone about doing this, is looking at community partners to bed them in, embed them in our, our business school, share our resources, share our expertise, um, and, and it speaks to those types of issues. Yeah. Um, I would also like to, to bring in a different a different aspect to this issue. Maybe like you've done some research on responsible leadership. And so I'd like to ask you also, like what, what, does, what role does leadership play in this overall transition that you're describing? It, it is massive. How um, the state we find ourselves in as a country, the state we find ourselves in in terms of the, uh, the, the, the private sector, the public sector, and the nonprofit sector, um, our public sector leadership is a, is a, it's lacking. Um, and you know, people typically look at the government and say the government is failing and there's corruption in the government, but it takes two to be in a corrupt relationship. And, and it is the private sector that is typically in that relationship. And so there, that model leadership, that model fibers we have to develop. You know, our role in a business school is to develop character. It's not to create character. We cannot create character. That happens way earlier on. So it is for us to be either a light shining a path ahead and explaining and showing or to be a mirror where it is you reflect the type of character that people are uh, and then pose the alternatives, you know. So leadership is critical, it's crucial. Um, but whether people take it seriously, I don't know, you know. Just, just as human beings in our personal capacity to be leaders within our communities, within our homes is, is important. And what does that mean to be a good leader? Yeah, what, what does it mean to be a good leader? <laughs> well, it means that you practice the good daily, consistently. Is that you work towards that excellence. Uh, and very interestingly, you, my, my youngest son was trying to, uh, he, he has this thing about practice makes perfect. Um, 
he plays tennis and and I constantly have to remind him that practice should make progress. Doesn't make us perfect. We're human beings. None of us will be perfect. But we can keep practicing those good habits, those values and principles, you know, to the point where it is that we reach that excellence. We won't be perfect, but we need to see progress in our lives. We need to be better than who we were the day before. So let's say I would like to make progress as being a responsible leader. Um, what do you think are ways we can train ourselves or questions we can ask ourselves on a daily or weekly basis to, to, well, to check in with us and see where we're going? Yeah. Four big questions in life. Where do I come from? An origin question. What meaning do I contribute to, to society? What are my ethics? How do I behave? And the last one, you know, I use this in both an individual and organizational capacity, is about sustainability or where do I go to year after? And so those are the four questions we should be asking ourselves every day. Where do I come from? What meaning do I contribute to society? What are my ethics? How do I behave? And where am I going to go to from here? Can you... Origin, meaning, morality, and sustainability. As you end with sustainability, I would actually love to love for you to, to relate this the social aspect or these social issues that we've been talking about to the broader concept of sustainability. Because for a lot of people, it stops at, let's say, protecting nature, conservation, planting trees, mm -hmm. and so on. But the social aspect is also very important, in my opinion. Could you could you rel relate the two concepts to each other? Yeah. Um, one has to have some balance in society. And so, you know, we have capitalists, we have socialists, we have communists, we have all these ists, right? And people view themselves in their particular camp. Um, what we fail to do is find each other and how it is that we can work and sustain our society. And I think that I sort of want to depart from that point of view. It's okay to have differing worldviews. There's nothing wrong with that. But one has to have understanding that if I accept a particular worldview, someone else can accept the same too. Um, to the notion of sustainability, one cannot take out of a system, out of a community, out of an organization, out of this world, more than what it is that you put in. Um, and I think that is a fundamental principle in one's life, is capitalism isn't the problem. It's the perversion of capitalism that is the problem. In its original and purest form, there is enough of a give and take in capitalism, right? Um, but it's the perversion of capitalism where one takes more than what one needs out of the system um, to fill one's belly. Um, using these plain terms because, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the people understand it a whole lot, lot better. No, no, definitely. Um, 
a bit off topic, but it's, it's still one question because I'm also looking at the time and see that we don't have that much time left. But yeah, in, a, in, a recent, in a recent tweet of yours, um, you called the South African government the Mr. Miyagi of the world. And now like thinking yeah. about how you said, okay, practice makes perfect and so on, that may be relating to Karate Kid and so on and so forth. Um, could, you, could you explain why you called him the Mr. Miyagi of the world? Yes, because they tell us on one side, <laughs> we must do all these wonderful things. Uh, but on the other side, we don't have electricity powering this country. In fact, we're busy having this conversation now and the power's gone out. I'm running um, my internet through my phone, you know. And so so that, that we, tweet was, was just taking me back to my, my childhood, this notion of having to keep doing things, right? And they've conditioned us in some ways <laughs> to wax on, to wax off, but one doesn't see the results that you'd like to see. So it was more tongue in cheek um, that our government is telling us to do these things, but we don't see the, the value being returned as citizens. And that's one of the challenges we also face. You know, there's a dismantling of the social cohesion and the social contract within this country. I look at it because I have this lens, I adopt this lens, it's nothing, I come from struggle, I come from having to fight, I, have, I come from not having much to having to, 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 to speak about sharing. So I see these things in a particular way. Um, you cannot speak about the environment to people in the same way, to people from where I come from, to people who are living close to the mountain. Water means, a running river means two different things. A running river in a pristine area is something of beauty. It's something to enjoy and to look at. Where I grew up, the river was a means to take waste away. So people dump their stuff in a river. So when you talk about environmental sustainability and you talk about saving the planet, we've got to talk about for who and for what purpose. You know, we cannot see these things. And, and uh, I say this, Europeans, uh, Americans tend to look at these things and say sustainability and we have these wonderful plans about carbon footprints and offsetting. Well, it, it, you know, that's okay, but where I come from, if you had to tell somebody that uh, that tree must stay in their garden because it's bringing life, and they're saying I have to build a room for a family member, they're going to chop the tree down. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, that's the interesting thing about sustainability. It's spoken from this perspective of those who have and have enough um, in some ways. And that's not me um, saying we shouldn't advocate. I work in a, one of the, the, the work um, foundations I work with, the Spirit Foundation. Um, we preserve a part of the river um, in the leafy suburbs as well. You know, and we do some education work with, with children lower down in the road. But, you know, um, we, we cannot be speaking about these globally understood principles and concepts when the majority of people don't live their lives according to the SDGs, they just don't. Um, it sounds nice for business people, it sounds nice for academics, 
But if you go into the communities that I grew up in, that I work in, and you say, which SDG do you align with? Um, you're not going to get the answer. I need food to eat. I need a space to live. I need water to clean myself with. It's, not, it's a very different conversation, right? Um, so that's a bit of the, 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 the critique I have around education um, and sustainability, in, 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 at least in business schools. It's always spoken from the ivory tower by all these knowledgeable, clever people who have yeah. not seen what and smelt what a river can smell like um, where I come from. Would you say that's one of the biggest maybe failings of be it business education, but maybe also leadership education in general, that it's generally like a bit of a top-down approach targeting a very privileged group and not bottom-up, including the majority of the people who are not from these privileged groups? I think maybe there's a lack of experiential learning within management education because what we teach people is to be reactive. So you give them models, you give them formulas, you give them frameworks and you say, go and apply this and it's going to make the world a different place. What we fail to do is teach them how to think more critically, to take the time to think. Leaders should take the time to think and not just react. They need to be responsive to the issues that are there. Um, but it's too much of quick, 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 quick. We need an answer today. We need an answer tomorrow. And all those answers end up doing is creating more problems and challenges, you know, rather than stopping, pausing, thinking, reflecting, questioning one's actions, questioning what's going to be the result down the line. Instead of more of that, holding a space where you can actually go back and critique whether my behavior is changing or not. You know, we don't teach business leaders that. We should be teaching them that more. At least I try and integrate it. I integrate it into the courses that I do. Um, but to take the time to think, you know, think. Can you, do you have any examples of public figures who, in your opinion, practice this kind of leadership? Yeah, I, I suppose globally one would, would, under, would, would recognize somebody like Warren Buffett, right? So, um, he makes time in his diary to actually think about what he's going to do. So uh, I think that's one of the more common figures. Um, in a local context, I, I, I can't share anybody off the top of my hand because at the moment we've got a leadership crisis, you know, in government and in business. Um, Uh, largely driven by this consumerist approach to things. We want to make sure that we're the first to everything, right? We're the first to do this, the first to do that, the biggest, the best. Um, but we don't necessarily want to be the longest in things. And that to me is very interesting. The organization that I came from before is celebrating a nonprofit organization, the League of Friends of, of the Blind, 98 years old. 98 years old. Not many businesses in this country are 
older than 50 years. Okay, Armand, we're back. Um, let's yeah. not let ourselves derail too much by the technical difficulties that have reoccurred once more. Um, but yeah. we're also at the end of our time, so I have a few short questions for you to finish this episode off. And the first one would be um, looking at the future. It's quite uncertain with everything that's going on in the world. Um, what advice do you have for younger people dealing with this uncertainty? I think developing a discipline, a routine, doing the simple things in life, placing importance on things that actually matter. Um, and that comes back to values. What do I actually believe in? What do I believe to be true for myself? And, and can I be a good person? That's, that's my main um, piece of advice. There's nothing wrong with just being a plain Jane or Joe. Nothing wrong with it. Um, to be a good person. That, I think, is, is what we struggle with. To be a good person person and, and asking that question of yourself, what does it mean to be good? There's so many distractions in life um, and they just keep coming. There's, there's, I, I don't know how kids manage these days, but they have too many opportunities and too many things that grab their attention that they forget what's important. And what is important is, it comes down to these simple principles, right? Treat others the way that I want to be treated. Um, And, and I think that's critical to do good, um, you know, do good, find good to do. And there's so much that can, can be done. And I think then one is able to live a, a fruitful and a meaningful life, right? It's when you're, when, when you're doing that good. Um, interestingly enough, and I'm not sure if it's in your society too, um, when I look around, And simple things like faith-based organizations, community clubs, that when I was a young person grew up where there was another sense of community, those things have faded from our society. And, and I think, you know, we've become too much to ourselves and less about others. So that's my advice to young people. Looking, or looking at all the good that can be done, um, what gives you hope that we're looking at a bright future? Who said I had hope? <laughs> well, I hope you do have some. <laughs> well, I think this generation, um, my son's generation, um, although they have much that, ex that they're exposed to and, and many opportunities, they're a generation... Um, that is afforded the opportunity, like I said, to think. So at least in my home, my, my children ask hard questions. They, they, they think about their actions. Um, that gives me hope. So I can speak at least for the hope coming out of my home is while it is that I'm a father and they sometimes don't necessarily like what I have to say, they consider it. Um, And when I look at 
their peers, um, I can see there's a want to make a difference in this world. And they're re recognizing and realizing that we have these real challenges. And this is where the connection between me and Armand eventually cut off. So this marks the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it regardless and we'll listen in to the next one as well.